Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. When we come into this place together to worship, what we're really looking to do is to connect with God, to know God. And so as we pray today, pray, God, I want to know who you are and expect that God is going to show himself to us as we study his word. Let's pray together. Father, in your presence today, we proclaim that we long to know you. We long to know who you are. And so we pray today, God, asking that as we attend to your word, you would show us who you really are. And as we come to know who you really are, God, what we want to know too is what is it you want from us? And so, God, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do we jump the gun? The, the phrase, jump the gun, comes from racing. In the early 20th century, it became a custom at races, particularly horse races, particularly out west, to use a starting pistol to start a race. And so the phrase, jump the gun, means that you go before the pistol sounds at the beginning of a race. To jump the gun means that you are impatient, that you start early. We like to jump the gun. Why do we jump the gun? You know, sometimes it's very difficult to wait for the right timing for things, but waiting for the right timing is sometimes crucial. I mean, think about it if you are in an orchestra or a band. If you jump the gun and you play early, you're playing all by yourself, and you ruin the piece. Think about it in investing. The timing in investments can matter. Think about it in in baking a cake. You put the cake in the oven. And if you bring the cake out of the oven too early, you don't have cake, you have dough, you have batter, right? And so the right timing for things is incredibly important. And we have to find the right timing frequently in life with God. We are waiting for the right timing with God for some of the biggest things in our lives. For instance, for when to marry, for when to start a career for when our dreams are going to come to us, for when our goals are going to happen, for when and how to start a family. We're waiting on God's timing for some of these things. As life goes on, we begin to wait on God's timing for our health. We wait on God's timing for overcoming difficulties in life. And even because we know that Jesus is coming, we we end up waiting on God's timing for history itself to end. We're looking for God's right timing in so many of these things. So how do we wait on God's right timing? Because we're talking about things frequently that we want and we want badly. And frequently we believe that these things that we want are God's will. And so we become impatient for God to give us these things now and on our timing. And so... We take matters into our own hands. We jump the gun. 
So how can we avoid taking matters into our own hands? How can we avoid jumping the gun? How do we wait on God's timing in life and in history? We're going to look at the life of Abraham today, but we're going to look at Abraham and Sarah's lives because in one instance, they got it very wrong. And we learned so much about God's timing from what happened in their lives because Abraham and Sarah jumped the gun. Abraham and Sarah jumped the gun. Now, Abraham and Sarah had received promises from God. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would leave the land where they were living and go to a land that he would show them and that he would bless them and give them many descendants. When Abraham and Sarah arrived in that land, in the land of Canaan, God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. And then after years passed, God appeared to Abraham again and promised him, you will have descendants that are numerous, innumerable. There was just one problem. Abraham and Sarah were childless. In fact, when we meet Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 11, it is the very first thing that we are told about Sarah. In fact, in Genesis 11.30, we read, now Sarai was barren. She had no children. This is the first thing that's said about Abraham and about Sarah, more importantly, in the Bible. And yet, when they came to the land of Canaan, despite the fact that they had no children, there was still possibility Abraham and Sarah were in advanced years for our lifespans now, but the Bible tells us that their lifespans were much longer, and if you take into account their longer lifespan, well, Abraham and Sarah were just coming up on the midpoint of their lives. There was still time for them to have children, but after they came to the land of Canaan, 10 years passed, and still there were no children. When God appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham expressed frustration and disappointment to God. He said, I I have no children. You promised me children. I have no children. The guy who's going to be the heir to everything I have is some guy in Damascus. I have no children. At which point God said, Abraham, it was night. Look up at the night sky the stars in the sky and count them. Abraham, if you can count them, you'll be able to count your descendants because your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. What a promise. And still, Abraham and Sarah were childless. And so as we arrive in Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Abraham and Sarah came up with a plan. Chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We know this. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, 
and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So now, what happens here in Genesis chapter 16 happens according to the laws of surrogate parenting in that day and to its customs. The laws of that time recognized that some, some families, some couples would not be able to produce children. And in the case of a family that was a bit wealthier and a bit powerful, more powerful, who had servants in their household, the law allowed that the wife could give the husband one of her maids to be a sort of second uh, or, or also wife. And if she were to conceive in that union, the child that was born in that union could be adopted by the first and primary wife and raised as the couple's own child. And so this is exactly what Sarah proposed to Abraham that they do, that they use Hagar, her maid, who was Egyptian, and in case you missed it, that means she's from the land of Egypt. You'll need to remember that later. Hagar was Egyptian, and she said, Abraham, you could take Hagar to be your wife. And he passively said yes to the idea. And so they conceived a child together. And when Hagar realized that she was pregnant, she thought that her status in the household had changed, that her roles with Sarah were reversing, that she would become the first and primary wife. And so the Bible is unclear about what exactly she did, but simply that she mistreated her former mistress, Sarah, because of her supposed new status. And all this was a bad idea. And it's because Abraham and Sarah jumped the gun. They had a promise from God that they would have children, that they would have many descendants, and yet there were as yet no descendants. And we know from, from the text that they longed to have children, that they were deeply disappointed at their lack of children. And so they decided to take matters into their own hands. They, they decided to formulate a plan of their own instead of trusting in God, in his plan and his timing. Abraham and Sarah jumped the gun. But we learned something in the process because it turns out that jumping the gun with God leads to pain and problems. In fact, if we go ahead to verses five and six, we'll see the pain and the problems that it led to for Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Continuing in verse five, and Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. It was a great day in the Abraham household. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, with Hagar. And she, Hagar, fled from her, from Sarai. And so we see the, the pain already. Sarah thought she was doing something to secure the family's legacy, to have 
a child. And here she was being mistreated. And she blamed Abraham for it. She went to Abraham and she said, this is your doing. You do something about it. And Abraham, being as passive as he was in the first decision, said, no, this was your idea. This is your problem. You fix the problem. And so Sarah went back. And again, the text is unclear about how exactly she did it, but it says that she mistreated Hagar. And Hagar became miserable in the household, and Hagar fled. As we continue into verse 7, we get a bit deeper dive, beginning of it anyway, into Hagar's pain. In verse 7, the text continues, then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And so what we see is that Hagar has fled the household. But if you take the geographical clues that we get later in this passage, what we see is that Hagar left Abraham and Sarah's household and headed straight back to her home in Egypt. In fact, she had made it halfway back to Egypt from her home with Abraham and Sarah. And it was a difficult and dangerous journey. She was going through the desert. And surviving the journey depended on finding wells and springs along the way. And we're blessed to find out that Hagar came to a well. She found a well. She found a spring. She saw it. And the Bible also tells us that there the Lord saw Hagar and saw her situation and her pain. Verses 8 through 12 continue. And he, that is the angel of the Lord, said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So we find here that the Lord has seen Hagar. In our text, it says the angel of the Lord, and in our language, that means a distinct spiritual heavenly being who is not God himself. But in this text, it's a bit murkier. In some senses, the Lord himself has appeared to Sarah in a a vision of a type of spiritual enfleshment. And the Lord is seeing Hagar and speaking to her. And look at what he asks her basically at the beginning. What are you doing? Where have you come from and where are you going? He confronts her, and she tells him that she is fleeing from mistreatment. And God sees her pain. God sees her and says, you're pregnant. She knew that. You're going to have a son. She didn't know that. And this son that is to be born from you is like his father Abraham going to be the father of a great multitude himself. God said, you're going to give your son a name. Your son's name is going to be Ishmael. 
And Ishmael is going to grow up to be a force of nature himself. Says he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. He's going to live in conflict. The descendants of Ishmael are going to live in conflict with their brothers, their cousins, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac. The descendants of Isaac, the nation of Israel, and the descendants of Ishmael, the Arab people, Arab-speaking people, are going to live in conflict. This is what God said in Genesis chapter 16. I chose this text for today five months ago. And we are living with the outflow of this decision by Abraham and Sarah to this day. He's going to be a force of nature, living in conflict with his brothers, the descendants of Isaac. God saw her. But then, because his plan needed to be fulfilled, God told her to go back. Go back to Abraham and Sarah. Go back to that household. Because that's where all these plans and promises will be fulfilled. Then as we continue into verses 13 and 14, we find that Hagar said yes to God. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Be'er Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. Hagar said, God has seen me. And I have seen God. He is mine. I know him. I belong to him. And I will say yes to him. And she said yes by that well and returned to the home of Abraham and Sarah. And in verses 15 and 16, we find great blessing and at the same time, foreshadowing of more problems to come. Verses 15 and 16 continue. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abraham called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so we begin with the blessing. Abraham and Hagar had a child. His name was Ishmael. Abraham named the boy Ishmael, meaning that he heard the message from God and decided to obey. He named the boy Ishmael. But Abraham was the one who named Ishmael. Sarah was not the one who named Ishmael. And that's significant because had Sarah named the boy, it would have been her way of claiming him of adopting him as her own. By not naming him, by Abraham naming him, Sarah is rejecting him as her own. She is not adopting him. He does not belong to her. Abraham and Sarah have not had a child. The promise is not yet fulfilled. And we see signs of a division that will persist and endure in this household. There will be Sarah and her child. There will be Hagar and her child. And Sarah will eventually force Hagar and Ishmael out of the household to much pain to Abraham. Because when we jump the gun on God's timing, it leads to pain and problems. 
But we learn something incredibly important about God here, and that is that God is faithful. He keeps his promises. God was faithful and kept his promises to Abraham and Sarah. We will find that they will have a child. His name is Isaac. Isaac will be born, and he will become the father of a great nation of Israel, and they will indeed take possession of the land of Canaan. God kept his promises to Abraham and to Sarah. God also is faithful and kept his promises to Hagar because God was consistently with Hagar and Ishmael did grow up to become a a mighty man, a force of nature, the father of a multitude of people himself. God was faithful and kept his promises to Hagar. God is faithful and kept his promises to Abraham that also impact us because God promised Abraham that he would become the father of a nation and that through that nation and a descendant from that nation, all of the peoples of earth would be blessed. And when the time was right through the descendants of Isaac, through the people of Israel, came a savior, Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. He is God come to us, God who still sees us, God who is still with us. And having lived a perfect and sinless life, Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, securing for us forgiveness and new life and eternal life and adoption as sons and daughters of God. That is the good news by which we come to faith in Jesus Christ. That good news is available not just to the descendants of Isaac, to the people of Israel, but to all of us, to all of the nations. And that good news is now being proclaimed around the world to every nation, to every ethno-linguistic people group on earth. The good news about Jesus is being proclaimed, and the door is being opened to forgiveness and new life and eternal life and adoption as sons and daughters of God. And that is the promise that God made to Abraham, and God has kept that promise. And that's critically important to understand because past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. I know that's true of me. What I've done in the past is probably very similar to what I'm going to do in the future. If I go to Wooden Tap for lunch today, I got a hickory burger there last time. It was really good. And if I go today, I'm probably going to order a hickory burger again. Because what I did in the past is the best indicator of what I'm going to do in the future. When I sit down to prepare a sermon each week, I have a pattern I've gone through in the past. When I sit down to do it again this week, I will probably go through the pattern I've gone through consistently in the past. I run from time to time. I have three routes I run. When I run tomorrow, I will probably run one of those three routes. Because past behavior is the best indicator of our future behavior. And the same is true of God. God's past behavior is the best indicator of his future behavior. And God's past behavior is that he has been faithful and he has kept his promises. 
We see that in the pages of the Bible. God is faithful, and he kept his promises to Abraham. He kept his promises to Sarah. God is faithful, and he kept his promises to Hagar and to Ishmael. God is faithful, and he has repeatedly kept his promises. And the pages of the Bible are filled with one reminder after another of that fact. But our lives, my life and your life, our lives serve as a testimony to the very same thing. Because God has made promises to us and he has been faithful to those promises and to us every step along the way in our lives in the past. We know this. And past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. God who has been faithful in the past is God who will be faithful in the future. God who made promises in the past and kept them is God who will keep his promises in the future. God is faithful and he keeps his promises. And that's critically important for us to understand when we are ones who want to jump the gun on God's promises. I want to give you five practices today that can help us to trust God's timing in life and in history. The first one is to practice hoping. Hoping is getting a picture of what it is that God is going to do in the future, that God has told us what is God's promise for our lives and for history. And the Bible tells us to keep that picture of the future God is promising us in our minds and hope in it always. In the prophet Habakkuk, chapter two, verse three, we read, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Habakkuk is saying, see the picture and hold to it. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Practice hoping. But as we practice and continue to hope, we also must practice longing. Because you see, our hopes are not yet fulfilled. Our hopes are still out in the future. Our hopes, we are not there yet. And hope that is unfulfilled turns into longing. Longing that God's promises will be fulfilled. But longing not just for God's promises to be fulfilled, but for God himself. We practice hoping that his promises will be fulfilled, and we practice longing for God, his presence, his person, himself. And the psalmist writes about this and says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord. And I love how the psalmist repeats himself here, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. We practice longing. Hoping turns to longing. But then as we practice hoping and longing, we also have to practice humility. Because the Bible says, I will put eternity in your hearts. I will cause you to understand where all of this is going and what you are truly created for. I will cause you to hope. I will cause you to long. But I'm not going to tell you everything about how it goes down. Ecclesiastes reminds us of this. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We're to hope. We're to long. 
but we're to do so with the humility that we will not see all the details along the way. We can't second guess God's plans. But as we hope, as we long, and as we do so with humility, we also practice remembering because it is remembering what God has done in the past that helps us to hope and long and do so with humility and certainty. We remember his faithfulness and his trustworthiness in the past so that we can trust him with his timing for the future. In Lamentations, we read, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. That's that remembering. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That is how we hope and we long with humility, we remember, and we are prepared for the long haul. We practice hoping. We practice longing. We practice humility. We practice remembering. And then it comes down to practice enduring. Because the New Testament is filled with an awareness that as we hope and long and remember and do so with humility, there will be times we want to quit. We want to give up. We want to take the reins ourselves. We want to jump the gun. And the New Testament tells us over and over again, don't quit, endure, and learn how to endure in hoping and longing and remembering and with humility. In Galatians, we read, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We do not give up. Keep on keeping on. The New Testament is telling us over and over and over again. How, though, how, though, do we wait? How do we wait for God's timing and not jump the gun? Simeon in the New Testament tells us how. In the Old Testament, the prophets told us very clearly that a Savior was coming, Messiah was coming. But then the prophets went silent, and it seemed as if the voice of God did not speak for years, decades, centuries. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to a man named Simeon and made known to Simeon that Savior, Messiah, was on his way. And that Simeon would live to see the arrival of the Savior of Messiah. Simeon would not die until Messiah had come. Years went by. Decades went by. Longing, hoping, remembering, humbly, enduring. Simeon waited. And then angels began to speak. Miracles began to happen. Jesus was born. And after Jesus was born, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, brought him to Jerusalem, to the temple, for a ritual. And on the day when Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus would be in the temple in Jerusalem, God the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon and said, go to the temple, go to the temple today, go in my spirit to the temple today. And Simeon walked into the temple and he saw the baby. He saw Jesus and he knew who this baby was and what had happened. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and blessed him. And then we read in Luke chapter two, what he said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Lord, your servant now gets to depart in peace. I have seen it. That which was promised to Abraham, a hope for all of the nations, a hope for your people, Israel. God, I've seen it. You are faithful. You are trustworthy. You have kept the promises that you have made to me. You promised the Messiah would come, and he has. You promised I would see him, and I have. You promised that I would live until this day, and I have. And to me anew, now I can depart in peace. God, you've kept your promises, every single one of them, and you are faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful and he is trustworthy. And there are so many things that we long for, so many things that we want in life and in history. We want our lives to turn out the way that we want them. We want our lives to turn out the way that we think God wants them. We want history to turn out the way we want it to. And we want history to turn out the way we want it to right now. And so we are prone to taking the reins ourselves. We are prone to jumping the gun. But God is faithful. God is in charge. God is trustworthy. So as we walk with God through this life, let's trust his timing for our lives and for history. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.